Let's uh, turn to God's Word to Genesis chapter 1 and uh, at verse 26 again. Just to read the two verses, if you have a a pew Bible, I'm going to be jumping over a fair bit of Scripture. I will read them out to you, but if you want to follow, I'll let you know um, where it is. Verse 27, rather. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, last week, we looked at the whole issue of gender and in the light of what's going on in our society of gender, male and female. We saw that in our culture, uh, there are those who want to say that there are many, many different genders, also that gender is fluid, also that gender is a social construct, whereas we saw that what the Bible teaches is that gender is something that's an innate part of being human. And in that sense, also, um, science is with the Bible on this one. Gender is tied in with biology, though not exclusively. And what I said we would do this week is we would look at the role of male and female in the church. And part of me just thought, when I I lost my notes on the way down, part of me just thought, oh, that's good, I've lost my notes, I can do something else. (laughs) But then um, I, I, I can't run away from this. I also do think it is incredibly important for us to teach our children both by word and by example. Because it's not just what they're being taught in different areas, but what they're seeing in in terms of culture and society. And that's why the words of Deuteronomy 11, 18 are important. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. That's important. Teaching of children does not just take place in Sunday school. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land the the Lord swore to give your ancestors as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. Now when we come to the area of gender and male-female relations in particular, there's a considerable um, societal struggle. I like the comment that a schoolgirl made Uh, She wrote down in her essay, God made Adam first. When he finished, he looked at him and said to himself, well, I think I could do better if I tried again. So he made Eve and liked her so much better that he's been making more women than men ever since. Uh, There has been a conflict between men and women ever since the fall in different ways. And in the world of the Bible, in the ancient world, and indeed in much of the world today, there is a scorn There was a scorn for women. Plato, for example, the great Greek philosopher, taught that a bad man will be reincarnated as a woman. The Talmud, thank you, O Lord, that you have not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And in actual Jewish law, not in the Bible, but in Jewish law, a woman was not a person, but a thing. And into that comes this teaching of the Bible, which for some people seems to reinforce that But I think if you examine it and look at it, what the Bible did was seek to restore the original relationship that we have described in Genesis 1, 27. Um, Again, I won't go into the history of it, but 
from about the 17th, 18th century onward, but especially in the late 19th and 20th centuries, um, there was a development of feminism, the notion of women being able uh, to get the vote. That may not seem controversial to you now. It was very controversial a long time ago. And I think I've said this before. Uh, the Free Church, when it was formed, was the first church in Scotland to give women the vote in terms of voting for elders and ministers. Uh, it was about uh, 80 years before women had the vote in Parliament. So we were streets ahead of the game. But we've now get to a, a stage in our culture where there's an argument even about what feminism is and the person who I would have considered the ultimate feminist, Germaine Greer, the fact that she's now being banned from several universities for being transphobic just tells you how much our society is getting messed up. So let's look at what the Bible says, and let's just try and... Obviously, there are tons of books being written on this. This will be fairly straightforward, I think, and fairly simple, but I think there are some very strong practical applications as well. First is this, Genesis 1 tells us that men and women are created equal. It's as simple as that. We're both created in the image of God. We're made in his image to reproduce, to have dominion over the creation. Um, equal, but different, and designed for relationship. Secondly, if you read through into Genesis 2 and 3, then that equality is distorted by the fall so in Genesis 3, the woman is told that your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The domination of women by men is a result of the fall, not a result of the created order. Now again, very few religions actually teach this. For example, um, some of you, I don't know if any of you know Sinead O'Connor, but she's just uh, converted to being a Muslim, and Sinead is classed herself as a rabid feminist. Well, I wonder how she would cope with this in the Quran, Surah 4. Men have authority over women because Allah has made the one superior to the other. As for those from whom you fear disobedience, he's talking about their wives, admonish them and send them to beds apart and beat them. That's in the Quran. That's a not uncommon thing in one, in many parts of the world, and not a not uncommon thing uh, in biblical times. The equality between male and female has been distorted by the fall and has resulted in uh, misogyny, uh, hatred of women, and abuse of women. And I know that it goes the other way. I know apparently that one in four domestic abuse cases are female on male, but uh, historically and still currently, the vast majority of abuse between the sexes is when males abuse having, generally having greater physical strength and often greater cultural power use that to abuse women. Now when Jesus comes along, I think he restores much of what we see in uh, Genesis 1, first of all. He's born of a woman. That is incredibly important. There were many women who followed Jesus. Uh, many of his disciples, not the 12, 
who were to become the apostles, but many of his disciples were women. He treated women with respect. Just take one example in John chapter 8, the woman at the well, who you may not have been treated with respect because she was a woman who'd had five husbands. She was a woman who was uh, ostracized from her own community, I suspect largely because of her behavior. She was on her own at the well, and Jesus treated her with dignity and with respect. You find in, when you get into the New Testament letters, the verse Galatians chapter 3 verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean that gender has been abolished. It hasn't lost the cultural and the social differences. It doesn't mean that you stop being male or female when you become a Christian. But in our standing before God, men and women are equal. So sexual equality, established by the creation, lost by the fall, recovered in Christ. We are equal in Christ. We are equally forgiven. We are equally sons and daughters of the King. And that was from the beginning in Christianity. That was never a social thing. It was never something that developed that the church is trying to catch up with. It was the church that changed the culture. It changed the the Greco-Roman pagan culture, and the church has continued to challenge the culture as regards gender. Even Augustine, who some people consider to be a classic misogynist. He wrote this um, in his treatise on the faith and the creeds about Mary. Moreover, we should shun those people who deny that Mary was the earthly mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. In reality, God's plan of salvation honored both genders, both male and female, at one and the same time. God has made it clear that he doesn't care only for the gender which he took upon himself. No, he also cares for the other gender by which he took the first upon himself. He bore the nature of a man, and in that nature, he was born of the woman. So in the context of salvation, and in the context of God's love for humanity, male and female are equal. So what does that mean? What about in the church? How do we treat one another? And let me just give you a a standard thing that is often pushed at me. Uh, you belong to a church which does not have uh, women elders. Is that because you think women are stupid? Is that because you think you have this misogynistic? And it not at all. Let's turn to First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, because I thought I might as well go for the most difficult passage. Um, in for a penny, in for a pound. First uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 to 15. It's on page 1192 of the Pew Bible. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. And there Paul uses a word which talks about uh, male, males. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission 
I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Well, doesn't that prove it? Doesn't that prove that this is misogyny? And uh, haven't people, there are people who have used this passage and several other passages uh, to suggest that um, women are inferior. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. What does that mean? Well, submission here is not subjugation. All of us submit in some way. In the context of your work tomorrow, you will submit to your employer. Uh, we have submission within our families. Uh, we submit to the state. We submit to the police, the, the, the laws of the land, and so on. In any society, there is going to be submission. And Paul here is talking, and we'll look at this a bit later, and same as he does in Ephesians chapter 5, about uh, the role of submission in family relationships and the role of submission within the church. What does it mean that he doesn't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man? She must be silent. Women had been newly emancipated. Perhaps they were beginning to dominate the church. So in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34, you get a command for um, the women to be silent and to ask their husbands at home. There was a, a liberty and a freedom. But be silent in the church. It's not an, it's not an absolute women sing. In the Bible itself, we have women praying. Ah, some might say, they do that silently. Okay, but we have women prophesying. Very hard to do silent prophesying. Uh, not much use to anyone. And in the, in the 1 Corinthians, the very passage where it also talks about women uh, being silent in the church, it also talks about women speaking um, and uh, prophesying. We also have examples in the Bible of women teaching. So, for example, Acts 18.26 we're told that Priscilla and Aquila taught. And it's interesting that Priscilla is mentioned first. And I think, although some people would dispute this, that we have women who are deaconesses, who are servants within the church, because that's what a deacon was or a deaconess. So it's clear, and the rule is always, you interpret Scripture with Scripture, that Women, it's not that women cannot nor should not teach. What is taught is that in the context of public worship, the role of the spiritual leader and the elder has been given to men, not because they are any better, but because God has decreed that it should be that way. And I'm not sure that there's much more that I would be able to add to that. Paul appeals to two things. He appeals to Adam being formed first. There's an order of nature. Again, it doesn't mean that the woman is inferior or any less made in the image of God. Priority or order doesn't mean superiority. And he talks about Eve being deceived. And that doesn't mean that Adam was any less responsible for sin. Because since the fall, men have always been saying, it was the woman that made me do it. And that is, you know, I blame my wife, I blame my sister, I blame my mother. Um, it's the woman's fault. 
But that's not what is being taught here. We're told that it is in Adam that all have sinned. Romans 5 verses 12 to 14. But the significance of Eve, men and women are both sinners. And the significance of Eve in this is important. I don't think this is teaching that women are more gullible. I've met plenty gullible men. But it is. Perhaps it's suggesting that, look, this is what happens when the, the, the roles are changed or reversed. I don't know what, why the reason is for this. And I think it is unwise for us to speculate beyond Scripture. One uh, other thing here is, what does it mean you'd be saved through childbearing? It could mean that childbearing was not affected by the fall, although for um, many, many people, even today and for many centuries, childbearing is one of the most dangerous things that anyone could do. It could refer in Genesis 3, uh, verse 15, the promise of the seed, that the promised child would come through the birth of a woman, that, that humanity would be saved through the birth of the promised seed. More likely, it's just, I think, the significance of the family being preserved. What does all that mean in terms of where we are at and how we look at it? Now, I've, met, I've read this passage because it's one of the hardest ones to grasp. And there are three different ways that people look at these things. One is they say it's just cultural conditioning. The trouble with that is if you, if you say that, and we need to look at the cultures these things came into to help us understand, we need to also be aware of how our culture and our cultural conditioning can affect us reading it. But if you think this is just cultural and this is not the inspired word of God in that sense, God's revelation then becomes dependent on fashion, transitory fashion. There are others who go the opposite way of that and say every single detail must continue today. But I'm sure that's not correct for lots of reasons. For example, how many of us obey the command, greet one another with a holy kiss? You shook hands when you came in the door. I didn't see any of you kissing each other. And we are not going to make it a rule in this church that you have to kiss people. What? But, but the Bible says greet one another with a holy kiss. Why are you not obeying the Bible? Well, because you're looking and you're saying, this is the, the way that people greeted one another in that culture. What is the equivalent in ours? And I think that's the same in this context as well, that we, we need to look at um, the cultures around us and how we apply the principles of the Bible. So in that sense, when we're talking about the role of, of women in the church and the role of men, but particularly the role of women, it is important to grasp that the kind of standard thing that I used to see in, in this magazine when we did an induction or, you know, that you'd get the, the men laid hands on the person who was being inducted as a minister. And then the, always you got the standard thing. And the ladies made a lovely spread. And, you know, it, that kind of thing exists in the church. For me personally, I experienced a kind of reverse sexism. Because as soon as I was converted, I wanted to teach Sunday school. And the church I went to, I went and volunteered to teach Sunday school. And they said to me, no, you can't because you're a boy. I said, well, you mean I'm too young? No, no, you're just male. And women teach Sunday school. And then in the free church, we have this thing, used to have this thing, well, you'd still do it, have it, women, uh, the Women's Foreign Missionary Association. I think it's a wonderful thing 
the, to support foreign mission. But why is it the women's? And the answer is, it was to give the women something to do. And foreign mission wasn't considered that important. And I'm sorry that, that that's a bit cynical, but I do think that that was a, a part of it. Uh, and I still think there's an element of that. Fine things for uh, the women to do. And to me, that's the antithesis of what's being taught in Scripture. So if you go to Romans chapter 16 and verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sincrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a great help to many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epinitus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. And you go on through that list, and you'll find, um, for example, verse 12, greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, these women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. That what Paul did in public was acknowledge the role of women and acknowledge the importance of women within the church. And I think that that, what's mentioned there is something that is of great importance in our understanding of where we are as a culture and what we should be doing. So there are some principles that I would want uh, to take from this in terms of how we deal with one another in the church and how we show to our culture the, how the different genders can interact. First of all, please don't equate gender stereotyping with biblical teaching. Women cook, men don't. Really? Genesis 25, 29, Jacob cooks stew. So it's not just women that uh, cook. Or, you know, men are macho and get involved in battles and war. Judges 4.21, Jael, Haber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. And she was celebrated as a heroine for doing that. It's not commending us to do it, it's just describing uh, what went on in that particular battle. But we need to be very careful not to equate gender stereotyping with biblical teaching. And I think that applies also when it, the bizarre thing is with the transgender stuff, gender stereotyping is, come, uh, is coming back. So a, a girl who's a bit of a tomboy, likes to climb trees, likes to wear you know, trousers and stuff, is highly likely to be told, hey, listen, maybe you're a... Maybe you're just trapped in the wrong body. You're not feminine enough. A boy who likes to sew. Well, maybe you're, maybe you're trapped in the wrong body. And a lot of it is based on stereotyping. So you get someone like a transgender heroine, Caitlyn Jenner. Um, you know, it's, it's the lipstick and the red shoes and the skirt and, you know, everything. These are meant to be feminine things. Uh, I was told once about... Uh, I was going to say someone, but it was actually me. You've got a feminine brain. I have no idea what that means. Um, but the idea is that 
you know, I don't know that females are meant to be more empathetic and so on. Well, all that in biblical terms, I think, is, is nonsensical. And we need to be careful about gender stereotyping. We need to be aware of trying to do away with gender differences and thus gender altogether. It's a mistake to bring up our children and, and say there's no difference between male and female dress, for example. And there's no difference uh, in, in how men and women behave in different ways. There are many factors that affect us and many things that, where, where there are substantive differences. And we, may, we need to make sure we don't do away with the gender differences. But I think maybe the, the thing I'm most burdened about this evening is we need to be aware of using the excuse of the Bible to justify abuse and misogyny. I've seen that happen so many times. I've been in cultures and contexts and in churches where men did think that they were superior to women. And sadly, I have witnessed several times Christian men, professing Christians, who use the Bible as an excuse to abuse their women. And they would argue they were being faithful to the Bible. I would argue they were being blasphemous. I think they were, they, they, it, it is a horrible thing. It has brought absolute disgrace on the name of Christ when men professing Christ have behaved like that. And let me say this very, very simply. In this church, if male or female, but if you're a male, because it's much more likely to be male, and you abuse anyone in your family, you abuse your wife, or you abuse your children, please do not think that it will ever be covered up. This is very important. Uh, I received an, uh, an email from somebody and asking, you know, what would we do in this situation, not in this church, where uh, there was a case of uh, sexual abuse by a pastor or alleged sexual abuse by a pastor, and they wanted to say, well, look, we should keep this quiet for the sake of the church, and the Matthew 18 thing, first of all, you go and tell him, and if he's penitent, then you leave it be. And they were asking, they just asked my advice, and I said, no, the very, very opposite. You go straight to the police. Because this is abuse. It's illegal, and it's wrong. And for the church to try and cover that up in any sense whatsoever is wrong. Now, maybe most of us will say, well, okay, we're not in the area of abuse. And I do accept it works both ways. But it's wrong to imply that it works kind of equally both ways. Maybe most of us would say, most of us who are men would say, well, we don't abuse, we don't physically abuse. But um, there is a form of misogyny that is, is unbiblical, which treats women as inferior. And maybe we just need to repent of that. If you turn to Ephesians 5, you will see for me what I think is the best and the most perfect uh, description of how we ought to behave towards one another. Um, You'll find it on page 1176. I'm not going to read it all, but let me just mention some, some parts of it. Be imitators of God, from verse 1, therefore as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
First principle, we live a life of love. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these, these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. There mustn't even be a hint of sexual immorality. Why, why is that tied in with how men and women treat one another? Because when you objectify, if as a man you objectify women, they become not women, but just objects of your desire and your control and your power. It's why pornography is so wrong. Always run away from pornography. Always. I have seen, I've probably seen more Christians being brought down by pornography than almost anything else. The last time I spoke about this, four individual men came up to me and, and, and said, look, I'm really struggling with what I see on the internet and what I click and what gets sent to me. I think on average, I get sent one pornographic invitation per day. And it's just in the bin, straight away, in the bin, in the bin. Oh, what harm can it do? Just have one look. No, it can do an, an enormous amount of harm. And again, that's where I have a lot in common with feminists who regard pornography as exploitation. Now, there are others who, who want to say otherwise. But as I mentioned last week, if you look for the video that's been produced by um, a, a, a local society here of the prostitution in Dundee, it is absolutely horrendous and abusive. And I think the Swedes and the Northern Irish have got this right. The people who are prosecuted in Sweden for prostitution are the people who purchase it because they're the ones who are abusing. But what Paul is saying to us, there mustn't even be a hint of sexual immorality. And that's why coarse joking, you know, it's, it's hard. If you're in a work environment where people are making crude uh, sexual innuendo and all the rest of it, no, you can't join in as a Christian. You just can't. Even if they laugh at you and mock you, you can't join in. See this Me Too movement. We were there long, long ago. It's wrong to, to do that. It goes against what God has, has given to us. And then um, go on to verse 8. You were once darkness. We quoted this this morning, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Find out what pleases the Lord. And do what pleases the Lord. Then go on to verse 21. I always think that people read from verse 22 without taking into account verse 21. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay? That is absolutely key here. Because then wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. We're to submit to one another. That's the relationship we have within the family of God. Wives submit to their husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. His body of which he is the savior. So wives should, as the church submits to Christ. So also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. 
and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. Do you see, that's why abuse can never be acceptable, ever. You love your wife as you love your own body. Um, I find it bizarre that we are living in a culture where men are now almost more narcissistic about their bodies than women. And I just think it's strange in some ways. But I find it even more appalling that people can justify abusing their partner on the basis of this passage when this passage says you care for your wife as Christ cared for the church. And what did Christ do? Christ gave himself for the church. He gave himself. And I think all of us who are husbands, if that's the standard, we all have to say, well, we failed. But there's a a, a partnership in this, if you like. The wives have to submit to their husbands. Sometimes there's a fear maybe of of what a man might do or might become and there can be a sometimes a desire to nag, a desire to 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 almost verbally beat into submission. In the same way as there could be a desire to physically beat into submission. And I think that that is something that is just in entirely wrong. And that's where you you get this, no one ever hates his own body, he cares for it, we are members of his body. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And there's the standard you see. The standard is Christ and the church is the model. And the relationship that male and females are to have to one another, particularly in husband and wife, is to resemble that. I don't think that is just in between husband and wife. I think that we are, uh, by the way, women are to submit to no other. If, if you're married, you're not being told you've got to submit to every man. No, not at all. But I, I, I do think that there's a kind of model here of mutual submission and respect. Each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. It is not saying that the wife mustn't love her husband, nor is it saying that the husband mustn't respect his wife. I think what Paul is doing here is addressing perhaps weaknesses, that there's a tendency for men to assume, well, of course I love her and I'll just go and do what I want. And there's a tendency perhaps sometimes for women to find it quite hard to submit to their husband, to respect their husband. One of the saddest things you see in a marriage is when the, the woman, the wife, uh, despises her husband. That's a horrible, horrible thing. I think just as sad and worse is when you see a husband who doesn't love his wife, doesn't care for his wife. And that, that's also a, a form, I guess, of despising. So... When we're talking about male and female, I think that is modeled in the church. I think that is seen in uh, particularly the most intimate of relationships between men and women. And that's why it's so tragic that the number one reason for people falling away in the church and the number one reason that, that the church is being disgraced right now is because 
of people not respecting this, not listening to what God says, and not obeying. I did a prophecy, inverted commas. I do, always do 10 predictions at the beginning of the year. And one of them was that more senior Christian leaders will, be, will fall because of this. And already I can think of six who have gone. We've seen it in the free church. Um, we've seen it in our own uh, congregation. We see it, it's a, it, because of the way that society is, because of the pressures on us, there is more reason for us to listen very carefully to what God says in his word. And again, I'm coming back to the children. It is important for us to bring up our children. It's important right from the very beginning that boys are taught not to despise girls, which is that's just a girl. It's important that girls are taught as well about the proper relationships between men and women. And it's important that they see that in uh, our homes. But it is also important that we in the church are, are 100% upfront uh, about this. In Ephesians, it talks about how um, in verse, back in verse 11, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. That's why when the Catholic Church, but not just the Catholic Church, other churches, including evangelical churches, um, there's a horrendous case uh, in, the, in the Anglican Church just now, and there have been cases in, within this city as well, where people have thought, well, this leader did this, but for the sake of the gospel, we need to cover it up. No, we don't. For the sake of the gospel, we need to expose it. That's what is taught here. We, we don't condemn people in the sense of saying, well, that's it. They're doomed forever. But if we've got a biblical theology, we realize that everyone can fall. But we must deal with it openly and, and honestly and realistically. It is heartbreaking when you see and hear uh, Christians who have worldly attitudes in, cur- in terms of misogyny, in terms of abuse. And of all people, we should be the ones who, without the kind of virtue signaling and all the rest of it that goes on, but we should be the ones who show respect and who show love. And I know that to some degree, all of us fail in that. I will put my hands up myself as well. Of course there are times when we maybe say things that are inappropriate. There are times that we have attitudes that are wrong and there are times when we misuse whatever power we have within a relationship and we abuse it. But that is not a time for us to celebrate, it's a time for us to repent and to mourn and to seek God's forgiveness and also the forgiveness of those whom we misuse and we abuse. Maybe one other thing, and I'm, uh, no, I'm not sorry. I was going to say I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. Uh, we, the children in this church, are respected and protected, and they must always be so. That's why we do the child protection stuff, by the way. When all the child protection stuff came in, I thought, nah, that's not necessary. You won't get Christians behaving badly like that. Um, yes, you will. And it happens. And that's why there is an absolute responsibility on all of us not to instill fear in children, 
but to make sure that we do have the, the proper, not just the proper procedures, but also the proper attitude. It is, you know, when you see what Jesus says, if you cause any of these little ones to stumble, it's better that you'd never been born. And I want children to be safe within this church. I want, uh, not me, but I would say Jesus wants women who've suffered abuse and, uh, and so much else to realize that this is, this is a place of safety. This is a safe space. We'll be challenged by God's word, but I hope that we will never put forward the kind of attitudes that are um, hateful, uh, misogynistic, and abusive. Same for, for all of us. How we relate to one another in, in our culture, in this context, at this time, is going to be a tremendous witness to people. So, the, maybe that's not what you were um, expecting to hear. Summarizing it, the Bible's teaching is that God made us male and female. He made us both equally in his image. He made us different. We complement one another. Um, the idea that there's no real difference between men and women except a few biological bits, that's not right. He made us different. He made us to complement one another. He made us for relationship. He's given us plenty guidelines in how we should do that. The fall has come, sin has come in and crippled all of our relationships. But Jesus comes and restores. Jesus comes and gives us new life. We will always have that battle, but it is possible and we should seek to live, as he says in chapter 5, verse 1, as imitators of God, living a life of love, giving ourselves as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If we have sinned and stumbled, in these ways before there is forgiveness for us but we repent and we endeavor after new obedience I pray that the Lord will grant that this church and not just this church but at all churches would be a beacon and a light in a confused and messed up culture and for that to happen, we have to support one another, we have to encourage one another, we have to admonish one another. Let me just give you one small example. One of the simplest things that can be done is if you're a man and you've had difficulty with pornography, find another man, a Christian brother you can trust, and just say, look, I mean, you can get a computer program, but you can find your way around a computer program. Just say, ask me every month, how's it going? And just be upfront, straight. Just say, well, I, I logged on to this, I did this. Or when, you, when you're aware of that, then it makes a phenomenal difference. I also think if you're in a situation where you have experienced abuse or experiencing abuse, you do need to get help. And you, you do need, I mean, it's one of the saddest things of my life to see uh, women who've been abused get out of that relationship and then go into another abusive relationship. Sometimes I think because they feel so worthless and they feel almost like they deserve it and you don't deserve it. Nobody has a right to abuse you or to harm you. And again, we need to, we need to challenge that and we need to change the attitudes 
that are there. But ultimately, of course, it's only because of what Christ has done. It's only because of the strength he gives us that we can take on and challenge the shibboleths and the deeply ingrained attitudes within our culture and within our society. So may God grant us each wisdom and strength and may he enable us uh, to know what it is to live in harmony and to be kind and compassionate to each other, forgiving each other as in Christ God has forgiven us. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you for your word and we ask that you would help us to um, be convicted by it, but also to see how radical it is and to see how it is possible because of your spirit, because of the truth that you grant us, that we can live new lives. Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us to respect each other, that you would help men and women to respect each other, that our children would be taught in word and in example what that really means, that we would repent of times when we have had wrong attitudes and wrong actions. We ask, O oh God, that you would protect those who, even in this city tonight, are in danger of uh, abuse and harm, those who are oppressed, those who are cruelly used. O oh Lord our God, we pray that you would set them free, and we pray that we ourselves would be free within our own hearts to love you and to serve you and to love and serve your people and all those whom we come into contact with. In your name, amen.